Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 11, verses 26 through chapter 12, 13a. Let us listen now for the word of the Lord. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. And it used to eat of his meager fare, and drink from his cup, and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock uh, or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hands of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if you, and if, if that had been too little, I would have added much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have him, have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. For you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. David is a a really interesting character in biblical memory. He is almost always remembered in a very positive light, almost overwhelmingly. We tend to remember him as the man after God's own heart, right? You've heard that before? That moniker actually comes from Paul in Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are on one of their missionary excursions and they go to a synagogue in Antioch. After a reading from the law and the prophets, they're invited by the leaders of the synagogue to speak if they would like to. So, of course, Paul gets up and goes into this long sermon about God's provision throughout the history of Israel, which culminates in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. So let this be a lesson to you. If you ever give a preacher an opportunity to speak, expect a sermon. 
But interestingly, if we look in 1 Samuel, where David is first anointed as king, it doesn't quite go exactly like that. God never actually says it quite like that. In 1 Samuel 13, King Saul is preparing for battle against the Philistines. And Saul is feeling completely overwhelmed. So he offers a sacrifice, uh, hope, you know, trying to maybe get God on his side. But the sacrifice that he offers is unlawful. So he, he's, he's done a, a bad thing, right? So Samuel, the prophet, he learns of the sacrifice and confronts Saul about it and asks what he has done. Saul tells him about the sacrifice and Samuel says to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So to be fair, you know, the prophet Samuel is supposed to be, right, the mouthpiece for God. So perhaps we can cut, cut uh, Paul a little bit of slack here. But the idea that God would say that David will carry out all of God's wishes is a bit odd, especially given how the rest of the David story unfolds. But again, perhaps we can also give Paul a bit of a pass here because he didn't have the luxury of being able to you know, pull out a smartphone and, and look up the scripture right there. He just you know, had to kind of remember it on the fly. But it is interesting to notice how David is remembered, even you know, from a very early uh, period. Because David starts out as the classic underdog story, right? In fact, his encounter with Goliath is the paradigmatic example of all underdog stories. And as king, he has some pretty stellar moments. He brings together the northern and southern kingdoms uh, to, to unite them under the united monarchy. He returns the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And his kingship is generally marked by incredible prosperity. He's wildly successful in battle. And on multiple occasions, he shows an astonishing propensity for mercy and grace. But there's that whole Bathsheba and Uriah incident, right? Which is kind of a big deal. In fact, it's, it's the incident that comes before this that leads to him being called out by the prophet Nathan in today's reading. And David also apparently didn't get the memo about you know, things like biblical family values, because he had several wives, possibly as many as eight. But I'm not sure if we're supposed to count that against him or not. But then to top it all off, at the end of his life, at the end of his kingship, David performs a census of all of Israel. And for reasons I'm not entirely certain of, it infuriates God. Now, whatever the reason, David immediately recognizes it as sin. He knew that he wasn't supposed to do it. So, he recognizes it as sin and prays to God uh, for his guilt to be removed. And God's anger is then kindled against all of Israel because of him, because of this great king. And God speaks to, uh, to David through another prophet, Gad, and actually gives David three options for what his punishment will be. He can choose either three years of famine in the land, three months of him, being on the run, being pursued by his enemies, or three days of pestilence for, throughout all of Israel. And David, the great king of Israel, ancestor of the Messiah, remembered as the one after God's own heart, chooses pestilence for his people. 
Now, that may sound like the least dramatic option, because after all, it was only three days of pestilence as opposed to three years of famine, but those three days result in the deaths of 70,000 people. 70,000 people die because David chose to save his own skin, even though the punishment was, was because of his own sin. And it would have been more had God decided, had, had God not decided to spare Jerusalem at the last second. And we shouldn't forget about Uriah either, Bathsheba's husband, whom David had, had placed on the front lines of battle and ordered the commander of the army to have the rest of the soldiers fall back, ensuring Uriah's death on the battlefield. And let's also not forget about the child that David and Bathsheba conceived on their salacious night together, the child who died only after only seven days of life. That baby's blood is on David's hands as well. So when Nathan comes to David, as we saw today, it is after the death of Uriah, but before the birth and death of the child, and after he has now married Bathsheba. But Nathan essentially pulls a bait and switch on David. It's, you know, it's the oldest trick in the book. From an outsider's perspective, David can clearly see who is in the wrong, that what has happened is a miscarriage of justice and should not be allowed to stand in his kingdom. Through this clever parable, Nathan gets David himself to admit, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. David speaks his own death sentence, blissfully unaware that he is the rich man who took advantage of the poor man. Nathan cleverly turns the tables on David and reveals, you are the man. Once David realizes the full magnitude of his sin, he can only but confess, I have sinned against the Lord. But at that point, it's a little bit too late. The damage has been done. His life will be spared because of his repentance. But Uriah and the child would not be so lucky. So what can we take from this strange saga of David, this man allegedly after God's own heart, and particularly how he is remembered? First, I think reflections on David that ignore or conveniently forget his lifetime of failures, mixed in with also his many successes, points to our propensity to sanitize history and how we remember people, important people. Often when we talk about David, we talk about him as this great leader who made this one big mistake, right? You know, the whole, the whole Bathsheba and Uriah incident. But then he repented of his sin, and he walked faithfully with the Lord from that day on. He was a great leader and a great king. It's a great story. And we love a good, you know, second chance story. We love to hear about degenerate sinners delivered from the depths of depravity. And we do this not only with figures like David, but especially uh, with, with our own dark, dark, dark places of history. Those things that we'd rather not look at. Or that we'd rather not admit even exist. So, for instance, if you were to visit St. Augustine, like many tourists do, you can take a trolley ride around town and see all sorts of interesting historical sites, and you can buy all sorts of ridiculous trinkets and spend a fortune on them. But one of the sites that you will inevitably see right in the middle of the town square near the Bridge of Lions is the slave market. You will also learn on this tour, however, that even though it's called a slave market, 
not one slave was ever sold from it. So as you drive by, the driver will proudly announce to you that it's the slave market that never sold a slave. Like the story of David that we often tell, it's a very nice story, but it simply isn't true. In fact, we have plenty of historical evidence to indicate that it was called a slave market for a reason. Slaves were sold there. The church I worked at in St. Augustine for three years had, uh, back in the 60s, one day had famously turned away a group of uh, African Americans who came to worship on Sunday morning. 1964, as you may know, was a, a very tense summer in St. Augustine, with demonstrations being held almost daily, attempts to integrate lunch counters, hotels, beaches, and even churches, like on this day. And it often got ugly. Dr. King even wrote a chapter all about St. Augustine in his autobiography and saw it as a turning point in the civil rights movement. It's left deep scars in the community, in large part because of the violence that often erupted in the streets. So 40 years later, there was a local organization that wanted to put up signs all over St. Augustine commemorating these key sites of the civil rights movement in, in St. Augustine. A couple years before that, our church had decided to host a reconciliation service in which they invited back those whom they had previously turned away. They issued a formal apology and then worship, had this beautiful worship together, worship together as, as one body, as an integrated body. It was a beautiful and moving service, tearful and joyful. So naturally, the organization that was putting up these signs wanted to put one up at the church, telling about what had happened back in 1964, including information about the reconciliation service. And ultimately, the church decided not to allow the sign on its property. The perspective of many in the church, though not all, was that we were past that. Right? That was in the past. That didn't matter anymore. It was an embarrassing moment in the church's history, but we had done what we could do to make it right. And putting up this marker in our front lawn would just dig up old wounds. Besides, who wants a monument to their sins displayed on, in their front yard? But how we remember history, or whether we choose to remember it at all, is deeply important. It's especially important now when it seems that many in the media seem to be revising history more and more frequently. There are certain things we just don't want to admit to ourselves, but we must. Can we not celebrate our rich heritage and history while also being honest about some of our blind spots and some of our dark places? Can we not accept that history rarely lends itself to such simple characterizations of good guys and bad guys, but is filled with people like us and like David who are messy and broken and imperfect and flawed? Can we honestly claim to be people of the truth when often we can't even handle the truth of our own histories? If we can't be honest with ourselves about where we came from, what hope do we have of going forward? Can we not be after God's own heart without sanitizing our histories to make them more palatable to us? If there is any hope for us in this, it is in the reminder that even though David, on most days, was likely just another power-hungry despot, he was still the one through whom God chose to redeem humanity. And to me, this is exactly the point. We're mistaken if we think that David's actions should preclude him from being remembered 
as one who was after God's own heart. He may very well have been, but he was also human, all too human. And he should be remembered as yet another example of, much like us, a person who was probably wrong more than he was right, but through whom God chose to work, and through whom God could change the world. So may we embrace the messy histories of those who came before us. And may we embrace our own messy histories. And may we too, like David, go after God's own heart. Amen.